And hey, this just gives me a moment to say that if we haven't met before, welcome. My name is Abby and I'm our Young Adults Director. And I say this often, but you picked a pretty great night to come. And I genuinely mean it this time. Because tonight, we are in part two of this super incredible series that we have. It's called Chain to Unforgiveness. And the reason why I'm so excited is because tonight, we actually have brought in a very special guest speaker. Yes, we can let go. We're coming. But before we jump into that, let me go ahead and give you just a little bit of background on this special guy that I'm about to bring up here. He and his beautiful wife, Lacey, and their two daughters, Parker and Finley, they reside in Franklin, Tennessee, and so they flew in to come be here with us. On Sunday mornings, you probably know Pastor Reese. He's our incredible interim pastor. Him and um, this guy are very good friends. And so when I told Reese about this series, Reese was so excited to welcome him. Um, Where this man is from, he's from Church of the City. This is a church in Tennessee. And before there, he was at churches in Chicago, Las Vegas, leading students, young adult ministry, which we're a little biased, but that sounds like one of our favorites. And now he resides as the executive pastor. But guys, hear me. He's never been to young adults before. So it's a special VIP treat to have him right here at New Hope. So I need you to show him what a New Hope welcome is like. Would you go ahead, stand on your feet. Help me to welcome Pastor Matt Verretta. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, guys. You guys can grab a seat. That was such a kind welcome. Let me start by saying lower your expectations based on that introduction. But it is a treat to be here with you guys tonight. It's a real honor. Um, Spent the day hanging with Reese and Abby. And I want to begin just very briefly by telling you um, about the first first time I ever had the chance to teach the Bible, first sermon I ever preached. This was almost 20 years ago. I was 17 years old, and I am a brand new Christian. I have not been following Jesus for even a year yet. I didn't grow up in church. Um, Like some, you might be familiar with the idea that some people go to church Christmas and Easter. We went a little more often. Um, we, at some point, attended a small church where my dad would go to sign up for the church softball team in the spring. But a handful of times a year, and then some friends from my high school invite me to their church, and I start following Jesus in the middle, middle of high school. And did any of you guys ever grow up, or when you were growing up, are you guys familiar with uh, Vacation Bible School, VBS? Some of you? Some of you don't come from a church background. It's, you know, it sounds like the strangest thing ever. But this is... In the plainest term, this is like church day camp for elementary school kids in the middle of summer, uh, or in some communities, it is uh, known as free childcare from the Baptist and Methodist churches. <laughs> but this church that I'm a new Christian at and I'm part of the youth group, they have a VBS, and for the the oldest students, like fifth, sixth graders, um, it's sort of like the youth group takes over VBS for them. So the youth group and the upperclassmen and the youth pastor are kind of hosting this day camp these 10 and 11 year olds and um, I'm asked to teach the lesson one day and um, I'm excited because I'm 17 years old and really cocky and I think of course you would ask me to because um, a lot of 17 year old guys think they're awesome but it does occur to me that I'm as I'm preparing this talk that a lot of these 10 and 11 year olds have certainly studied the Bible more than I have and when I'm assigned a topic in a passage and I'm reading it for the first time ever in my preparation. And I new to church still, but I've noticed that like preachers tell the coolest stories. They're funny, they seem almost unbelievable. And I think that's so much that I assume part of being a preacher is sometimes making up stories to make your point. And so I do that. Um, the first time I ever not not exaggerate, 
not, not like take some liberties as I tell the story, I completely, 100% fabricated a story about something that happened to me when I was in middle school to appeal to these rising middle schoolers because I thought that's what you're supposed to do when you're a pastor. <laughs> I told one person about this a little bit later. It was a youth intern who'd kind of like coached me a little bit and, and I'm like, he was complimenting me on the story. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I, I made it up. And he said, what do you, what do you mean? Like, I said, yeah, like it didn't, didn't happen. And he said, don't ever tell anyone that again. <laughs> and I say that because my youth pastor who asked me to give that talk, who I did not immediately confess that to, uh, is your pastor, Reese Whitehead. And so um, I, I do want to say, um, Reese was a pastor to me, and then a, a mentor and a boss. I interned under him, and, and for years now has been a friend. And I think one of the greatest gifts a pastor can offer, one of the, the greatest things a pastor can do is to have the gift to be able to call out the gold in someone, to, to see them how God sees them, to help them see themselves in the way God sees them, and, and to call out the gifts that God's given them. And... Um, as a 17-year-old who didn't know the Bible as well as 11-year-olds. Reese did that for me and changed the trajectory of my life. And uh, I just want you guys to know, I don't know how well you know him, um, but you, you have a really special pastor. And just as someone from Franklin, Nashville, I just want you to know that you have friends there, that we pray for your church, that we love you guys. And uh, I'm just grateful to be here and grateful for Reese and uh, really looking forward to hanging out. And I promise you, anything that I say has happened to me tonight <laughs> is true. So um, I wasn't with you guys a couple weeks ago, obviously, but I did have a chance to talk to Abby about how you guys started this series. And um, Abby talked about kind of introducing forgiveness. And she talked about how forgiveness is continuing. It's ongoing. Forgiveness is freedom. And, and what I want to talk about tonight a little bit is why is forgiveness, if we're being honest, so difficult to apply ongoing? Like to have a very honest conversation about, like, yes, if you believe the Bible's true, it sounds important. It's, you can, it, even rationally, like, we can see why it matters. But it's difficult, if we're being honest. It, it's one thing to forgive somebody if they cut us off in traffic. Uh, it's one thing to forgive somebody. Um, I don't even want to give the wrong example, being flippant. But, but when someone really hurts you, like a wound from a parent, um, Romantic relationship, someone breaks your heart, someone cheats on you. Um, even take a workplace situation, your boss, day in, day out, is patronizing. Like these, forgiveness, if we read the Bible, it does seem like it should be ongoing, and it does seem like it should lead to forgiveness, like Abby talked about, but it is difficult. One way I'm experiencing the difficulty of forgiveness um, just about every day right now in my life is with my two daughters, uh, Parker is eight, she's in second grade, Finley is five, she'll start kindergarten next year, and they're, they're almost three years apart to the day, and so with what I'm learning, I was an only child growing up, so this is all new to me, but at three years apart, they are, you know, close enough that they do play together, but far enough apart that it is very natural for the eight-year-old to assert her dominance, and you know, every kid has their own unique personality, Parker, the eight-year-old, strong personality, very creative, very imaginative, uh, and she likes to be in charge. 
So you see the gifts in this, right? Like she is great at creating games to play and creating imaginary worlds and like laying these things out. Every, almost every week, there's at least one day in the week when I ask what she did at recess and she has started a new club or come up with a new game. She, um, she decided to, that she was going to save the environment. Um, she started a Save the Trees Club and her friend from down the street and her started making posters and they asked the principal if they could put them around the school and they couldn't. But I say this to just say like, <laughs> she's always coming up with ideas and there's beauty in that and we, we wanna, my wife, like we wanna celebrate that in her. So sometimes her and her sister are playing and it's great, but also, so Parker, eight-year-old, strong personality. Finley, five-year-old, also strong personality. Um, Finley, if Finley was here tonight, she would give any of you a hug and tells you she loves you. God has given her the biggest heart. She has so much love to share and it's beautiful. And also, Finley, um, her anger switch can flip quick and she's fearless and she is physical and she will fight you and she will say the meanest things if you cross her. And it's crazy to watch. And so on any given day, Parker is telling her little sister what to do, and for a little while, her little sister likes it because Parker's come up with these creative games, and then she decides she's had enough, and she starts indicating she's had enough, but Parker is super smart, and at times can be, she doesn't fully understand this word yet, but we're trying to teach to her, she can be a little manipulative with, like, tricking her sister into doing, and then it, it varies who's more at fault, right, but it, it is, it is, Parker trying to trick her sister and her sister losing it and sometimes there's hitting and there's screaming and we're separating and we're trying to de-escalate and, and say things to our girls. Like I say this almost every week. Hey, sweetie, like it is okay that you feel angry. There's nothing wrong with your feelings, but when we're angry, we can't hit or hate. It's, it is good that you have these ideas and, and God has made you creative and we love that, but you, you can't make another kid play you want to play and then we try to like mediate, you know, can you go ask your sister to forgive you? And, and both my kids credit, they are quick to try, like quick to say, I'm sorry, quick to give a hug. It's, it's beautiful. Like them hugging on the couch saying, I love you. You're the best sister ever is the sweetest thing. It warms my heart. If I was a better preacher, I would have brought a picture of them and I totally forgot. <laughs> but many times, particularly on Saturday when I'm trying to relax and watch sports and my wife is out running errands, this happens, there's this reconciliation, there's this forgiveness, and less than 10 minutes later, the same thing has happened again, but now it's more intense, and it's usually Finley who puts it over the top, and she will say things like, this is the worst day ever, I'm so mad at God because he gave me this family, and it's the worst family of my life. And it's like, oh, man. Ongoing forgiveness, like Abby has talked about is difficult, and there is, uh, there is a certain, certain almost like silliness as I describe it with my kids, but I don't think it's that far off from how we often might operate in our relationships. Um, everyone's a little different, but I think for a lot of people, it is not that difficult to say I'm sorry. That isn't the challenge. There are exceptions, I realize. But for a lot of us, we can say, I'm sorry, the, the challenge is actually in our heart believing that we want to and will and pursuing the reconciliation and then doing it on an ongoing basis. And so what I want to talk about tonight is um, I want to get into a particular passage of Scripture. It's really just one verse that 
is not obviously or specifically about forgiveness, but I think it can be a key to really being unchained from unforgiveness and, and being able to live a life of regular forgiveness, like Abby talked about. Um, before you look at that scripture, I, I should say, I, this is my first time ever being here in Durham specifically, and I don't, I'm not super familiar with this area. I have a, an aunt and uncle who have lived in Raleigh my whole life, so I've visited them a few times. But otherwise, like, even, I don't even know if these are the right phrases, but when I, I heard Reese was moving here a few years ago, um, like Durham, that is Tobacco Road, that is the Research Triangle, and like a lot of sports fans my age, any idea I have about this community is shaped by watching ACC basketball in the 90s and early 2000s. So this is always a risk, because I don't know anything about you guys, I'm not trying to do like a whole bit here, but do you like, do, are there fans of certain teams in colleges? So I don't, I'm gonna throw a curveball in a minute anyway, but like, so Duke is a college. And then is, is UNC the other? And where do Wake Forest and State fit? Okay, so this is great. This is great. Um, I, even though I'm in SEC country in Nashville, my college team is actually an ACC school. And if I gave you 16 guesses, you would probably get to it on guess 16 because they're one of the new ACC, they're not really an ACC school, but they are in the conference. Uh, I'm a lifelong fan of Syracuse University. My, all right, thank you. That's great. We'll have to talk later. Um, my, my family is from Central and Upstate New York, and that's kind of where it comes from. And 2003, first time ever a team I cheer for in any school wins a championship. Syracuse wins the men's basketball national championship. Anyone remember who the star of that team was? Carmelo Anthony. Yeah, ends up, has a great NBA career. Um, and one thing that was notable about that team and Carmel Anthony that year is he was a freshman. It was one of the first times in history that a freshman truly is the star of a team that goes on to win a championship. But um, he was, in most ways, probably the best freshman that year. But there was another incredibly successful, well-known freshman basketball player that year who played at Duke. goes by the name of J.J. Redick. And as a fan, uh, you know, I... Like any teenager who's rooting for my team, I'm like, this J.J. Reddick is horrible. You hate this guy, right? Like, just any, which is, you look back, like, who cares? Like, whatever. They, we weren't even in the same conference at the time. But I hate J.J. Reddick, but then I grow up. I become a Christian. You're right. I'm not even a Christian at the time. J.J. Reddick, and if you're not a sports fan, I'll be out of this in one minute, okay? Wake up. Stay with me. If you're not a sports fan, J.J. Reddick claimed to fame is he's a great shooter. He goes on to the NBA and um, is one of the best shooters in NBA history. Like, like the, the form on his jump shot, like you could study it, right? He has this great form, he's, he's a brilliant shooter. And if you wanted to shoot like J.J. Redick, you could get on YouTube and watch some clips of him for an hour or two, and you could practice. And I honestly think if your goal was to get his form down and be able to shoot like him in the driveway by yourself, if you studied enough videos of him on YouTube, and you practiced enough, you could probably get to the form at least. You can make some shots. The real challenge, if you wanted to shoot like J.J. Redick, would be when you then go to play a pickup game out in your parking lot, which is crazy that you guys have basketball hoops in your parking lot, um, but, um, or you go to the gym, or whatever, or you play like in a league or something, 
and there's defenders, and you're running up and down the court, and you're sweating, and people are pushing you, and people are getting in your face, well, the, the form is just like the surface. Or that's the tip of the iceberg, right? J.J. Redick and people like him, they can shoot like the way they shoot because of the hours they spend working on their body, building up their core strength, building up their endurance length building up their lower body strength, right? That is all how they can still jump after playing a game for an hour. That is how they have the strength to maintain that form when they're dealing with the adversity of defenders and people pushing them, people yelling at them. And I think sometimes what happens in the Christian life is we take the words of Jesus and we try to apply them. We're trying to imitate Christ. And when we just take the words of Jesus and try to apply them, we can in times of relative calm and peace and when there's an absence of adversity. But if we're only learning and trying to apply the words of Jesus, but not the ways of Jesus, when there's conflict, when those wounds come up, when we have an unexpected move, when life throws us a curveball, when there's an unexpected diagnosis, if we've only established the words of Jesus, but not the ways of Jesus, it's a certain kind of shallow faith that makes it difficult to continue following Jesus through adversity. And so what I want to invite us to consider tonight is how we can be shaped by the character or the ways of Jesus and how that can inform a life of ongoing forgiveness. And so uh, in a, uh, just a moment, we'll put this verse on the screen. If, if you use your own Bible, we're going to look at John chapter 1. And for a lot of people who read the Bible a lot, for being honest, a lot of people skip the first chapter of the Gospels, right? There's, there's these genealogies, there's these long prologues. We want to get to like chapter 7 of the Gospel where Jesus does crazy miracles or says really clever things, and that's like, oh, that's the cool stuff. You just get a Bible reading plan, it gives you Matthew 1, you're like, whatever, who cares? John 1, there's all this, like, the Word did this, and the Word, is the Word, Jesus, this is so goofy, John, like, why does he talk that way? But John 1, verse 14, the Word... It's referring to Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Tonight, I want to focus on this one phrase, full of grace and truth. Now, I think all of us as people have a natural tendency to gravitate toward grace or truth. And that, to be, like, this is not a value judgment. This is just, I think, naturally our wiring. This one tends to feel more natural than the other for most of us. But we can just stay on this phrase, full of grace and truth. When we think about Jesus came full of grace and truth, we can see all throughout his interactions with people how he embodies grace and truth. So um, Mark 10 James and John are these brothers that are kind of part of his inner circle. He's got the 12 disciples, but then there's this more inner circle of James, John, and Peter. And James and John start having this argument over sitting at the right or left of Jesus on his throne. They have this idea that he's going to ascend to a kingdom or a throne, and they have a very, like, earthly or worldly sense of kingdom, and they want to be his right and left hand. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what's going to happen. Do you even know what you're asking about? Grace and truth. Grace is, he keeps them in his inner circle. He ends up entrusting them to do some amazing things. Truth is, you guys don't know what you're asking. Or many of his interactions with Peter. We could spend 30 minutes just looking at grace and truth interactions with Peter. It's Matthew 16. 
Jesus looks at Peter and he, he asks him who people say he is. And Peter gets this question right. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you are the rock on which I will build my church. And a few sentences later, he looks at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. Grace and truth. Some translations actually say in that, the first part, he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Get behind me, Satan. I think maybe the best picture of how Jesus embodies grace and truth when he interacts with people is in John chapter 8. Pharisees and religious leaders um, catch this woman in adultery. And they bring her to Jesus and they catch her and they're trying to kind of catch him and having the wrong teaching or the wrong application of the law. And I'm going to pick up in verse 7. We'll put it on the screen. John 8, verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Grace, neither do I condemn you. Truth, go and leave your life of sin. And I think this particular story is in such stark contrast to the world that we live in today. Because our world that we live in does not have a framework for this kind of interactions. Imagine, without making it too personal in a way that, you know, I don't know any of you guys, but just imagine this actually is happening in your life. You or a friend. Someone is caught in some sort of scandalous sexual sin. There's a grace response. Hey, what do you, what do you think? Like, well, no, no one else was saying anything. Well, I don't, I'm good. I'm not condemning you either. Do your thing. Live your truth. Go. Do what you want. Or truth. I mean, how many times do people make a mistake and the response is just perpetuating shame? What's wrong with you? Especially sexual sin. I think this applies more broadly, though I will say, since that's the example here. So many times people have an all-truth, no-grace response. Finger pointing. And it leads people to wonder, what's wrong with me? You can see this in so many ways. Um, take even our, our two-party political system in America, and I'm, oh, guest speaker talk politics, no. But just, I'll say something. I think, I, don't, I hope this isn't too controversial. Like, I do think both sides on different topics make valid points with truth. The problem is both sides total absence of grace and the, the national discourse, right? That's not to say a person who's one party doesn't have grace, but just the, when critiquing legislation or critiquing stances of the other side, there may be valid truth. There's a total absence of grace. So we live in a world that presents grace or truth as a dichotomy. And if we're being formed and discipled by the world, we will start thinking, this is a choice I have to make. So when someone wrongs me, I have to either show them grace or be like, hey, man, that really hurt. The world presents grace or truth as a dichotomy, but the way of Jesus, that is a false dichotomy. That's not true because Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so I just want to illustrate this a little bit. I'm going to 
try to draw something and write a couple words. I have horrible penmanship. And all, it's, this might not be good, but I think it still can be helpful. So I'm just going to make a simple matrix. Um, I asked Austin earlier, up, down, why matrix, right? I know I'm among some educated folks. Um, so we'll say that is our grace matrix. And then X, right, we've got truth. And if it's helpful, I'll just throw this out, to use sort of non-religious language or, or bro more broad language. Another way you can do this interchangeably is replace grace with the word support and truth with the word challenge. But I'll, I'll mostly talk in terms of grace and truth. And what I want to invite you to consider, and, and we won't even apply this to um, forgiveness yet, but just relationships with people in general, right? Any kind of relationship. Imagine what a high grace, low truth relationship looks like. I mean, this is your fun friends, right? These are your friends who are like, yeah, like I'm up for any, like what are you doing? It's like, okay, cool, I'm in. But then this can also be your friend, let's say you're dating someone and you bring them around your friends and, and your friend's like, oh yeah, they seem fine, like cool, yeah, I'll go, we'll go out, we'll go, this, we'll double date. And, and then afterwards, the person, you break up and your friend's like, oh, I'm so glad, they were the worst. And you say, why didn't you tell me that? And they're like, well, I didn't, I didn't want to make you feel uncomfortable. That would have been hard to say. Like, a lot of us have high grace, low truth friends. And there's a lot of words we could put here, but just to help us picture, I will write the word cozy. Right? A high grace, low truth relationship feels cozy, which is great. That isn't wrong inherently, but it is something. High truth, low grace this is the, they'll definitely tell you if they don't like the person you're dating, you just might not want to know their opinion. Um, you know, this can be, this is like the casual friend who gives unsolicited advice. This is the boss who is probably good at their job, but the, the sort of intensity with which they address you and give you feedback leaves you feeling a bit discouraged at times. And so a high truth low grace relationship, um, I'm gonna describe as harsh. And then we've got low grace, low truth, and it, I mean, we don't need many of these relationships around. <laughs> but if we're being honest, I do, some of us have a few of these, like it, sometimes it takes time to move on from these. But um, not to be dramatic, I'm just gonna write the word dead, like the relationship, right, the relationship. It's kind of a dead relationship. So, you know, top right, this is Christ-like. And I think there are seasons, there are circumstances. It is normal and natural that we will have relationships that move around these quadrants. The goal is not that every person you know lives up in this quadrant. But it is important that if we're trying to follow the ways of Jesus, we, because we can only be responsible for what we do, that we are trying to calibrate that we show up in relationships in a grace and truth manner. And it's important, I think, to take stock of the relationships you have. And if, if you have some cozy friendships, you may need that for a season. Right? You might have some really intense things going on, and, and a couple cozy friends are God's kindness to you. And there are people who may be high truth, low grace, and it, it will probably be soul-sucking if you surround yourself with them a lot. 
but God still may use them to teach you some things. So it's not that you have to cut these people out of your life, but, but this is where human flourishing lives. Because Jesus came not just to offer us eternal life, but a rich and fulfilling life today. And I think that is found in a life that is full of grace and truth. And so now I want to invite you to think about, because we are talking about forgiveness, when conflict arises and how we talk about hard things, how we potentially confront people or choose not to, and the posture with which we are prepared to receive hard truths and confrontation. You can probably imagine now relationships you have and conversations you have, and like I said, even just like the way the world talks about one another. And something I want to suggest is that grace without truth is incomplete. There will be a temptation, there will often be temptations, to embrace grace without truth. We don't want to rock the boat. I don't know if they'll have ears to hear this. And for a moment, even for a short season, that may be appropriate. But grace without truth is incomplete. That won't lead to healing. That won't lead to flourishing. And I believe truth without grace is unhelpful. If our goal is to point others to Jesus or for ourselves to walk in the ways of Jesus, to have relationships that are living in this upright quadrant, Truth without grace just doesn't get us there. And so now just briefly, I kind of want to ask you to imagine more specifically now in a, what happens when someone wrongs you and kind of overlay it over this grid a little bit. So if you're kind of an upper left trending person and someone wrongs you, what does this look like? Um, well, this is a, uh, no, no, it's cool. Everything's cool. Like, we're fine. We're fine. Have you ever had those times where somebody hurts you and they actually know they might have hurt you, so they, they check in with you. And they're like, hey, when I, when I said that earlier, like, I'm sorry. No, no, it's cool, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Do that occasionally, not the end of the world. But if that's a habit, this is bottling stuff up. And when we bottle things up over time, it will come out. It just may come out in a very unhealthy, harmful, toxic way. This can be a path toward codependency. I'm not okay if we're not okay. And since I'm so afraid if I bring truth that we won't be okay, I'm just going to try to mirror whatever I think you want me to do. That's grace without truth when we might need to ask or seek forgiveness from someone. Truth without grace, this is someone who you just want to name the wound, but you have no intention of pursuing healing. Um, this is hard, like, that, this can look like sometimes trying to prove a point more than reconciling, and that, that might be accurate in what it's diagnosing, but just to what end? And then, when someone hurts you, and you're in that lower left quadrant, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the phrase, quiet quitting, and this came up. Like kind of in the workforce, you just kind of like fade to black. Like, I hope my boss doesn't notice. We're working on Zoom, so who, does anybody really know? And, you know, I have a friend who works for a big healthcare company in Nashville, and um, like he can always play golf on Fridays. 
and he can always like be at a restaurant like early evening, you know, happy hour time. And I'm kind of like, don't you, like, you have a big job, I think. And he's like, yeah, but I just, I just black out my calendar and you know, like nothing's that big of a deal. You know? Someone wrongs you and you just don't respond to the text. You're not even trying to pretend, like there's no grace, there's no like, no, it's cool. But you're definitely not letting them know. You just like I won't. I just won't ever text them back. What? And this, but then that leads to the same. Like this is another version of bottling up, right? See, um, something I want to suggest. I learned this from a therapist who's a friend, um, not my therapist, though. I see a therapist, but this just isn't the one I pay to see. This is a friend I get coffee with. Um, <laughs> she said, "We cannot heal what we cannot name." And so I want to encourage you, because this is difficult. It, it is not easy. But the goal isn't winning an argument. And the goal isn't not arguing at a social setting. If we're trying to follow the ways of Jesus, the goal is healing. The goal is reconciliation. And we cannot heal what we cannot name. Just real briefly, and then I want to give us a couple questions. We're going to pray and worship. But, um, you know, if you were to plot yourself, like maybe you're up here, you're kind of a, a high grace, lower truth, and, and you feel like the Lord's stirring something in you, you, you can't really immediately in a relationship move from here to here. It, it's going to, it's a bit too abrupt, right? So sometimes what we might need to do is take this path here a little bit where you recognize that for the person on the other side of you, you beginning to say some things that are true is going to feel to them like a little bit of lower grace. So you just want to be aware of that, to be patient, and not go high truth in the next conversation. Like, hey, I know we've never told you this, but we've been friends a couple years, and there's like nine things you've done that have really hurt me. <laughs> like, if there's nine, my encouragement to you is take two. Similarly, um, if you're kind of here, high truth, low grace, like, don't shoot. Like, that's just a lot to take in, right? So you kind of, you, you go, you start going up, and you start showing some grace, and they'll be like, wow, they're like so much nicer than they used to be. But then you've got to resist the temptation to go all the way up here, and, and you kind of come in here, and you're like, yeah, you, I had I'm so, I've realized that I've been slow to forgive. I realize that I've been just, I can be a tough person to be around. I have a certain intensity and I want to be a more gracious, kind friend. But you don't stop saying what's true because you know, we cannot heal what we cannot name. And Jesus kept people like Peter in his inner circle. He looked at that woman and said, neither do I condemn you. Sorry, I'm going to hold this marker in my pocket. Um... He said, neither do I condemn you, but he also said, go and leave your life of sin. And this invitation from Jesus to be full of both grace and truth, I think is such a sweet invitation, and it is so countercultural. Now, I, I believe, because this is, this is what God's been teaching me over the last year, is as I've tried to really wrestle with this grace and truth calibration, it's changed the way I read the Gospels. I see it all over the Scriptures. And, and it's something I'm aware of now in just about every relationship I have. But particularly thinking about forgiveness. 
And how do we deal with concepts like boundaries? And do I say this or do I not? I think a Jesus way of viewing it is trying to calibrate grace and truth and then step into that. So I want to just invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want to just invite you to consider two questions. The first is, um, just ask if, if God would show you, and, and you might know this, you might not even need to pray about it, but, but do you just generally in your relationships tend to drift more high grace or drift more high truth? There's a gift in knowing ourselves. And if, if you don't know, just ask the Lord, God, show me, what, how do I tend to lead? Am I more a grace person? Am I more a truth person? And now, and, and some of you maybe, the Spirit's already been doing this, but I would ask, if you would, to, to ask the Lord, God, is there any broken relationship in my life that you are leading me to pursue both grace and truth with? Maybe there's someone very close to you who has hurt you that you have never they've hurt you because you've believed this lie that to ask for your needs to be met would be unloving. Maybe there's someone who's hurt you and you've never felt safe enough to name that. And, and maybe part of this is, is, is you need to see if God could surround you with people who could help you take that step. But, and, and similarly, maybe there is a close relationship where you are so quick to point out the wrongs that you have failed to show them grace. Maybe there's someone who in your heart you love so much, but in your treatment of them, they think all you're concerned with is winning arguments or proving your rights. Just ask, God, is there any broken relationship in my life that you're inviting me or asking me to pursue with both grace and truth? God, you are so kind to us. I love that already tonight we've sung about your goodness. It says in Romans that it is your kindness that leads to repentance. And so God, I just believe that you, you model grace and truth because you want what's best for us. Because you know that that is a way of living that leads to the richest, most fulfilling, most satisfying life. And God, you show us grace. When we miss the mark, when we've failed to forgive or failed to ask for forgiveness, God, you're kind and you're patient. So we say thank you, God. You are a good God. You are a kind God. God, if there's anyone here tonight who who's recognized there is a deep wound and it feels scary, it feels big, God, I pray that you would be near to them. I pray that they would feel seen by you pray that you would put people around them who they know love them, who they know are safe for them, and, and that you would use them to help them pursue healing. And God, show us the error of our ways. Show us if there's anyone we need to seek forgiveness from. If you've put someone on our heart or a name, would you give us the courage to take that step this week? We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.